0: You are listening to the Riverside Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit us at www.riversideconnect.org. So, today we're continuing in part three of this series, Fully Convinced, and I want to invite you to turn with us in your Bibles to Mark chapter six. So, if you're new today, you didn't know that Riverside has a, an app. I want to encourage you to download that app. You can find that uh, in any of your. Uh, Digital platforms there, and you can follow along with today's notes. You click on the Fully Convinced icon; that'll bring up a Mills and Oakmont location. And I always encourage you to follow along there. You can email yourself the notes if you need a Bible. There are some in the chairs down there below you. And uh, for those of you who maybe you don't know where Mark is, you can go. That's toward the back of your Bible, or use your table of contents. There are four stories of the life of Jesus: Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark's story of Jesus is actually, as we've talked about, from the perspective of the Apostle Peter, one of the closest followers of Jesus. And so Peter kind of shares with Mark Who writes to a Gentile Roman audience with certainly a Jewish flavor and a Jewish flair to it to help people connect the dots. And as we look at the text today, there's some incredibly cool things that we're going to see. Uh, And the the specific idea today flows out of our larger theme this year. The larger theme for Riverside is fully alive. And as you've been hearing us for the last uh, several months in September, Riverside has chosen this theme. It comes right out of what Jesus says to the crowds that day that he was recorded speaking these words, he says this, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it to the fullest. And so we've been talking about month after month, what does it mean to live fully alive? And so today... The title of my message, and what I want us to really ratchet down on as we get into Mark chapter 6, we actually find ourselves on the lake, on the Sea of Galilee, that where we found ourselves two weeks ago. And Mark has got some fresh insights to share with us about this encounter that Jesus has with his disciples. But today what I want us to look at is this idea of how we are going to move from crippling fear to convinced courage. That's where we're going to be heading today. And so to begin with, I want to invite you to think about fear. I don't want you to dwell on it for too long, but what are you most afraid of? In fact, I did some looking and some searching online. Among the top 10 lists of folks of things that people are afraid of, let me just give them to you here real quick, spiders. Anybody afraid of spiders? You can be honest. Okay. Yep. I've heard many a scream from my upstairs uh, daughter's bedroom regarding spiders, snakes. I, I just can't stand a snake. Yep. By the way, we do have some. We'll bring in. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, stink bugs. Anybody like just they just freak you out? Yep. Stink bugs. Yep. Um, flying or heights. Anybody? are Yep. Yep. Okay. Clowns. That's a thing. Needles. If I ever come visit you in the hospital, and even if they're going to draw blood, I'm not afraid of needles. I will just pass out at the sight of blood. So uh, I'm not going to stay in the room if I come to see you and there's something like that going on. Fear of being alone. Fear of drowning. In fact, um, I've been trying for 25 years since Amy and I got married to take her on a cruise, and she will not go because she is afraid to drown. And she doesn't like to be out there on the sea, anybody with my wife. Well, here's the deal. Mark and his two stories in chapter four and in chapter six do not help me with that at all. So you'll see what I'm talking about. If you know what I'm talking about, it just does not help me out. Thanks a lot, Mark. Enclosed spaces. Anybody afraid of closed spaces? How about examinations, like exams? Like you're, you're just afraid of like taking the exams, the high school exams, college exams. Yeah, especially when you haven't studied, you're afraid. Yes, I, I get that. Failure. A lot of people are just afraid of failure. And then, number one, public speaking. Let me see your hands. You would rather do anything than get up here and preach today. Okay? So keep your hands up. Okay? I'm going to call on one of you, and you're going to come. (laughs) No. So what do you find yourself afraid of, most afraid of? or most worried about today, maybe this month, or even this year, this season of your life, our fears matter. It's the what ifs. The what if that happens. What if she says this? What if he does that? What if it doesn't turn out like I hope it does? What if I fail? What if I'm called on to do something? What if I try something, and it's a miserable, dismal failure? The things that we're worried about and the things that we're insecure about often highlight where we need to grow the most. Perhaps for you, it's a dream. You're afraid to pursue the dream that you've been pushing down for 10 years, maybe. For others of you, it might be a risk that you know deep down inside you really should take, but you're too afraid you want to jump into it, but you just can't bring yourself to do it because of fear. It may point the fear that you have well beyond stink bugs and airplanes. It, well beyond that, it may prove, that fear may prove to be your biggest opportunity to make a difference in this world. And as people who are fully alive, full of the Holy Spirit, given that life in Christ... We've been called to move from crippling fear to convinced courage. And so this morning, I wanna just give you the thought right out of the gate in case you need to leave early. I just wanna show you this. A fully alive life in Christ is one that can be free from crippling fear and instead be marked by a convinced courage. I really believe that with all my heart. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, if you're still kind of investigating or exploring, somebody promised you you know, breakfast later today or um, you know, you're just up here to do some shopping, you kind of wanted to come check it out, and you would say that your life is marked by a crippling fear, I want to let you know that as followers of Jesus, as you begin to trust him and put your trust in him, he can begin to help you to move to a place of living and operating from a place of convinced courage. Not in how great you are, not in the ability to predict the future and have the certain outcomes, but just knowing that Jesus is with you you, and you're convinced of that no matter what. Even if things don't work like you think they will, you don't have to fear because he's in the middle of it all. And you can live from a place of convinced courage. So what would it take for you to move from crippling fear? To convinced courage. What would it actually take for you to be able to do that, for you to be able to live that way? As we saw two weeks ago, the disciples were out on a boat, and they got all messed up, and they actually asked Jesus. We talked about questions in the storm, if you weren't here, when the the questions came. They wanted to know, Jesus, do you care? He said, hey, the wind and the waves obey me. Then they were like, who is this? And this journey continues on and they find themselves out there again, yet again, in the middle of another storm, in the middle of another situation where they're in over their heads. Now, I just want to say, first of all, that I'm not talking about today, as we look at this, I'm not talking about healthy fear. In other words, don't go out into your car and and just refuse to put on your seatbelt, okay? There is a healthy respect for the laws of physics, for gravity, and for accidents. So you put your seatbelt on because you don't want to be foolish, okay? Nod your head yes if you're tracking with me. Healthy fear, there's a fear of God aspect of life where we're not supposed to be afraid of God, but we are to have a healthy respect of God. So there is healthy fear. I'm talking about the crippling fear that merit, that, that, that destroys marriages. That consumes you as a parent to where you become that helicopter parent that never wants your kids to actually try to risk anything. You've seen them. You know them. I'm talking about the kind of interactions that you have with the people at work and you'll never take a risk in your business. You'll never take a risk as an employee or as an employer. Whatever it might be, you're so... Enamored with your fear. You wouldn't necessarily say it that way, but fear guides you. Fear impacts every single decision that you make and it's literally crippling you, keeps you up at night, and you've lost sight that the creator of the universe is still on his throne, that he hasn't gone anywhere, that he's not asleep at the wheel, that he hasn't decided to check out. He's watching. He's there. He's in the middle of it all with you. talking about Holy Spirit courage. So with that, I want to invite you to pray with me. Father, I thank you for your word that we're going to look at here today. I thank you, Lord, that even when we're in over our head, when there is fear about all kinds of things, some things we've hung on to for years, Right now, as we come into this place, there's a crippling fear about our health, about our careers, about our kids, about our finances. There's a crippling fear that we can't possibly share with the one that we've already talked about here this morning, with that one person, what you've done in our lives. We're terrified to share the good news with others. We're so fearful about this next Election and the politics and all that's going on in our world. We're afraid of all the stuff that's around us and it's an unhealthy fear. So as we study your word today, Holy Spirit, would you do something within us that we could begin to move from that fear to courage because we're convinced. Because we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're there to help us. Help us to lean into and take stock of the presence of your Holy Spirit in every situation we find ourselves in. In your name we pray, amen. So we're gonna begin in just a moment in Mark chapter six and verse 45. And as we do that, I wanna give you just a tiny bit of context. Jesus. It's just on the heels. There's so much that happens in Mark 6, and if you've been reading the devotionals ahead of time, then you already kind of know what's been happening in the chapter. But toward the end of the chapter, our story shows up, but it comes on the heels of Jesus feeding 5,000 people plus with five loaves and two fish. It was a Messiah-like miracle. Mark is building a case in his gospel. He's convincing people. And what he's doing earlier in this chapter is, is he's showing the, the readers who have an understanding of what the people had been looking for in a Messiah to come. The, the Jewish people were always looking for who this Messiah was to be, and they always pointed back to certain key figures in the Hebrew scriptures, what we know today as the Old Testament. One of those key figures was Moses. And Moses had brought the Israelites out of slavery and bondage in Egypt. You see that story in Exodus, and you see how that God provided the manna. And so in, in the story of Mark's gospel, Mark connects Jesus to being the one who provides manna in the first century, the bread that would come from heaven. John depicts him as the bread of life. And so the various authors of the scriptures are trying to connect the dots for the first readers that Jesus was the Messiah. And so now, after that miracle is done, the crowds are trying to come to him, they're trying to get to him, and it's time for them to depart. We pick it up in verse 45. It says, immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him. The people, another account of this says that the people were ready to make him king and he wasn't ready. So he says, guys, get in the boat. I'm going up to the mountainside. And it says there, they go on ahead of him to Bethsaida. And that's actually, Bethsaida is actually Philip's hometown, one of his disciples, and Andrew and Peter's hometown. And then he says, well, he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside. And what did he do up there? What's it say? What did he do? to pray. And one of the things that really isn't the point of the story in terms of what we're going to look at today, but it's just something that I felt so impressed, something so we could gloss over so quickly. But part of the idea of how we move from crippling fear to convinced courage is that we get away from the schedule of life. We get away from the people. We get away from everyone else and we spend time, guess what? Praying. We lean into, we find that rhythm of Jesus always motivating us and modeling for us that life of prayer. And so if you've not found yourself in a cycle, in a rhythm, in a healthy devotion to talking to your heavenly father in prayer, Jesus invites you to that today. He withdrew and would pray just as he modeled that for and expects us to do that as well. Now, in your notes and on the screen, you'll see some images of the Sea of Galilee. It's about seven miles wide and you'll see some photos of Bethsaida, what it looks like today, and also a key community that we'll see in the text in just a couple of minutes. There's another place there called Gennesaret. And you can see there the remains of those places, what they look like today. They're all around the Sea of Galilee there, which is, again, where our story takes place. i always like for you to have some context of what you're about to see. So as we continue to pick it up here, the feeding of the 5,000 was the lesson that Jesus gave them that day on provision. But the storm that they're gonna find themselves is kind of like the examination after the lesson. And the disciples, again, he sends them from where they were to try to get across that lake to Bethsaida. They'd made that same journey many, many times. But what should have been an effortless trip to a familiar body, across a familiar body of water to a very plain, normal town, turned into an unforgettable experience. So with that in mind, I'm going to invite you to stand with me in honor of God's word. And I've asked Erin Kelly to come because I get tired of hearing myself speak. I want you to hear from somebody else. And I want her to read this text as you follow along, continuing in Mark chapter six.
1: Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars, because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out, because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed for they had not understood about the loaves their hearts were hardened when they had crossed over they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there as soon as they got out of the boat people recognized Jesus they ran throughout the whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was and wherever he went into villages towns or country sides they placed the sick in the marketplaces They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed.
0: You may have a seat. Thank you, Aaron. So, the storm, as we found last week, was terrifying. Once again, they are completely helpless, and now in this story again, we find them swallowed up with fear. First, they think that Jesus is a ghost. It's the word where we get our word phantom from. What would you have thought had you been out there on the lake? The other accounts tell us that Jesus had put them in that boat perhaps as early as 6 or 7 p.m. By the time this is going on, it's between 3 and 6 a.m., They've been trying to get across the lake, and they've been rowing and straining and rowing and straining, and they're terrified out in this storm, and they've been doing it for seven, eight, maybe even nine hours trying to get across. And Mark also gives us something that is so special, and I want you to miss it. I wanna read it today from the New American Standard Version. It it says there that that they sensed that Jesus meant to pass them by. And this is so rich. Look at it with me. Seeing them straining at the oars. Let me just pause here. Seeing them straining at the oars. I read that and I'm reminded that Jesus always sees me even when I'm straining in the storm. He always sees you. And so if you're gonna move from this crippling fear to courage, you gotta remember that, you've, that God never is like blinded from being able to find you and see you. He sees you when you're in the straining moments. That word for straining is a, an incredibly intense word. It means to torment. It, it's referred in, in various Greek contexts when it's translated. Uh, it's talking about the pain and the strain of childbirth. Ladies, can I get an amen there from you? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. It's painful. It also refers to the pain and the anguish of hell. It's like a wide, wide word there, but it means incredibly intense effort and pain and anguish. And then it says that Jesus doesn't just see them. It says that he came to them. He saw the mess supernaturally from the side of the mountain there. He's looking down and somehow he can see it. He's God, he's divine. He can do that in a miraculous moment. He sees them and he doesn't just go, ha, That's rough. Hope that works out for him. He gets down into the mess, gets off the mountain, and comes to them. And then notice what it says. He intended, he intended to pass by them. Jesus was always intentional. Nothing ever was left to chance or coincidence. And I personally believe that Jesus willed this moment to happen to prove a point. The phrase that's used there in the original language, the word, the idea of pass by, is used elsewhere throughout the Hebrew scriptures to describe an epiphany, something where the character and the nature and the power and the identity of God is unveiled. It happens two other times specifically, one at Mount Sinai. When Moses is there on top of the mountain, God is going to pass by Moses. Moses says, hey, reveal to me your power and your glory. And so on that mountain, God says, hey, Moses, you can't look me straight in the face. No one can and live. And so I'm going to put you in a place where you won't actually see the front of me, but I'm going to pass by to show you my character and to show you my nature, and you'll see the backside of me and my glory and my presence. And so in that moment, he's revealing his identity and his character and his nature to Moses. And then you'll see in Kings that God does the same thing with the prophet Elijah. Now, don't miss this. In just a few weeks, we're gonna be on top of a mountain in the first century and Jesus is going to be with Moses and Elijah as everything begins to change. That's coming up in the next few weeks. But in this story with Elijah, God is there with Elijah again on the side of a mountain. and He puts Elijah into the cleft of a rock and he says, I'm going to pass by. And you can see those texts right there where the glory and the splendor and the majesty and the power of God is gonna pass by Moses and gonna pass by Elijah. And the same God who willingly revealed himself to Moses And to Elijah, as he passed them by, wants to reveal to the disciples that day on the lake, Jesus intentionally, I think in connection to what Mark is saying, they're in the middle of this. They need to be convinced. They need to be reminded of the glory and the power and the splendor and the majesty and the authority of God. And so Mark helps us to connect those dots just as God went by and meant to pass by and pass by Moses. And just as he did it with Elijah, now Jesus, Jesus is going to do it with the disciples. He's going to pass them by, and nothing has changed for 2,000 years. He still wants to pass by you and I to remind us that He's in control. That even when it seems like all is spinning out of control, He still commands the winds and the waves. If you think about the Old Testament stories, Hebrew scriptures, you'll see that Moses, Joshua, Elijah, and Elisha all parted bodies of water. But now Jesus takes it to a whole new level and he walks on the water. And interestingly enough, again, John records this story from, uh, has a few bit, a little bit of details. Matthew does the same thing. Matthew remembers the tax collector that follows Jesus. And Matthew actually Uh, at this point in the story, Matthew actually records a detail that Peter doesn't or that Mark writing on behalf of Peter doesn't. And I'm honestly not sure that could simply be the Holy Spirit's directing Matthew. He's the only one that tells this part of the story. It's perhaps possible that because Peter didn't necessarily want to draw attention to himself that he didn't include this story or maybe he was just embarrassed. I don't know. But Matthew records that in the middle of this that they think that he's a phantom, they think that he's a ghost, and Peter says, hey, if that's actually you, Lord, would you tell me to come out onto the water? And he gets out onto the boat, and he walks on water, and then he takes his eyes off of Jesus, and he looks at the storm, and he begins to sink, and then Jesus pulls him up. They get into the boat, and instantaneously, he doesn't even have to speak a word. The storm is silenced. The storm Comes to an end. Now, the story continues. Notice what Jesus says. He says, Have courage. And He said it to them 2,000 years ago on that lake, and I believe He's saying it to you and to me today. Have courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Have courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Have courage can also be translated as be brave, be of good cheer, take heart over and over and over again. Jesus uses this language with his disciples. Take heart, guys. Have courage. It's, it's I. Don't be afraid. You can also translate that phrase, don't be afraid, as don't resist me. And when we, when we don't embrace Jesus And the courage that he wants to give us by the power of his Holy Spirit, making us fully alive, when we resist him, we'll stay in that place of crippling fear. We won't be able to walk and live in a convinced courage. And so I have to ask myself, as I'm reading through that, I'm asking you too, what what am I doing to resist what he wants to do right now in my own life? Now, how in the world were the disciples supposed to relax in the middle of a storm like that at sea as Jesus is doing this? Notice what he says. He reassures them. He says, do not fear. Have courage. Don't be afraid. He says, it is I. You can translate that also. I am. Jesus gets into that boat. And he begins to connect some dots that, again, we may not fully get a hold of. But when God was speaking, when God the Father was speaking to Moses, and Moses was to be called out, to then go and to help lead the Israelites out of their slavery, out of their oppression, and out of their bondage. Moses says, hey, who is sending me? Who should I tell them is coming? God says, tell them I am is coming. Jesus reveals himself over and over and over again as I am. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the gate. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says it over and over and over again, I am is with you. And it's not just speaking of the past. It says, I always am, I always was, I always am, and I always will be. And in the middle of that, when Jesus gets in the boat and he says, take courage, the creator of the universe is in the boat with you. I am here and I have never left you. I have not forsaken you. I saw you from the side of the mountain and I came to you. Maybe that's you. You need to hear that today. You need that encouragement to be reminded of that, to shift from the fear that consumes you so that you can live and walk in the courage that he offers. That name, I am who I am, always speaks of God's constant presence. By doing this, I think Mark is laying this out. He's trying to convince the readers then and us today that as Jesus miraculously feeds the multitudes and now he's walking on water, Jesus is more than a man. He's the creator, he's the one who is the God of Israel. He's the I am of the burning bush. He's fully human, yet he's fully God simultaneously. In a word, he is Messiah. And because of that, they did not have to fear. And because of that, we don't have to fear either. In fact, the scriptures teach us that the perfect love that God gives us, that he loves us with, and the love that he wants us to have casts out all fear. The Apostle Paul writing to his young protege, Timothy, who no doubt in that climate and when he's trying to lead and foster this church that he's trying to pastor was at times gripped with the kind of fear that I'm talking about here today. Paul writes to Timothy and he says, God has not given us a spirit of fear. He has not given us a spirit of fear. He has not given us a spirit of fear. Rather, he has given us a spirit. He has given us a love he has given us a courage that permeates and penetrates all of us, heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the way that he says it. He's not given us a spirit of fear, but has given us a power, a love, and a sound mind. Now, the thing that Jesus said the same day that he said, I've come to give you life, and I've given you life eternal, Life abundant, full life, satisfying life. Remember, that same conversation Jesus has, he reminds us all that there's an enemy that wants to steal, kill, and destroy. There's an enemy of your soul and mine that wants you to live with a crippling fear, who wants you to live from a paralyzed place where you can't fully realize all that God has for you, for your marriage, for your family, for your kids. But God has sent his spirit to help us, mind, body, and soul, to live in courage. Take courage. Take courage. Before we close, I want to draw your attention to a phrase that Mark uses to describe Jesus' followers that day. In fact, it's the first time that it appears in Mark's gospel. It won't be the last, but it's the first time. And I honestly, I'm not sure, but I don't believe that Mark actually writes this with a critical spirit. Um, But nonetheless, it convicts me today. It's in verse 51. I want you to notice it. He says there that when this happens, they were completely amazed, for they had not Understood about the loaves—that's connecting to the manna, the bread that God, Jesus had just fed the five thousand plus with. They'd not understood about the loaves. And Here's that phrase: their hearts were hardened. They were completely amazed. In other words, they were astonished. It means to like be beside yourself with shock. For they had not understood. That word for understood means that you put the facts together to arrive at an understanding complete with the application to your life. They'd not put the dots together. And then it says their hearts were hardened. It means that they were unresponsive. They lacked sensitivity or spiritual perception. Simply put, they had seen so much. They'd heard so much. And yet they had not connected the dots. They'd not personally applied what they'd seen and heard. Their hearts were not fully tender to the reality of Jesus. And it's easy for us to say that today and say, oh, you guys, how in the world could you not have gotten that? You've already been out on the lake with him already once, and he took care of it. Why would you, how could you forgot that? It was like two chapters ago. But how about us today? In what ways are our hearts hard? I think Mark, as he writes this, Is inviting those readers then, and and certainly I feel like it for me today, to ask ourselves whether we are like the disciples, watching what God's doing all around us in big and little ways, the miraculous, the faithfulness, watching the events that He's doing in our lives, but we're not always drawing the right conclusions, or whether our hearts are being softened, or whether our hearts are opened. To the extraordinary things that Jesus is doing all around us, right before our eyes. He's offering us a freedom from fear. That's what I came to share with you this morning. There's a freedom from fear, and He offers us a complete change of heart. It's in our thinking, it's in our imagining, it's in our praying, it's in our bodily health, as the story tells us that we're invited to come just like the crowds did, those frantic crowds that followed Jesus. It says that they touched the hem of his garment looking for help. Help. That same Jesus is here today with us. And no matter where you find yourself, he's here and wants to minister. He wants you to be able to leave this place with a burden lifted, with a perspective change, with a desire to go and help others who are straining at the oars of their life. He wants to fill you with the ability to minister to others as much as you have been ministered to here today in this presence of the Holy Spirit. As we wrap this up and the worship team comes, I want to draw your attention to one more thing that actually is unique to Matthew's account of what happens here. Matthew's story shows us that as these disciples continue their journey of becoming convinced of who Jesus was, something very special happened. Notice it in chapter 14, verse 33. Then those who were in the boat, those disciples, what is it? What did they do? Come on, say it with some conviction. what did they do? They worshiped him saying, truly you are the son of God. When we're convinced of who Jesus is, when we're convinced of what He's done, what He's capable of, we'll respond with a life of worship, a life lived fully alive. So, how will you live courageously today? How will you live courageously this week? What dream, what vision, what risk? What new role, what step of obedience do you need to step into that you have been crippled by fear and unable to step into? What conversation needs to happen? I'm telling you, this is real. I had a conversation this week that I have been afraid of for years to have. Literally, genuinely afraid. And I literally was trembling as I had this conversation. I'm telling you, the freedom I felt on the backside of that conversation because I didn't give in to the crippling fear that I had given in to for so long allowed me to have a freedom that I couldn't have imagined and I regretted waiting so long to have. And that's just a tiny little chat. What is it in your life today? How will you live courageously? For some of you, if I can be this bold because I love you and I care about you, You've heard what I've said last week. You've heard what Michael said this morning. And you've thought, there is no way I will ever get in that baptismal tank. Today is your day. Do not delay. Sign up. Step into the fear of being in front of others. Step into the fear of being wet in front of others. Step into everybody's getting to see that you're coming to Jesus. Step into that fear and watch God's blessing and His favor and His provision to help you in the tank to give Him the glory and the honor. You can do it. We'll help you. Father, thank you so much for the presence of your Holy Spirit here today. I pray for marriages pray for friendships I pray for people who are considering beginning something I pray father for those that need to end something that that crippling fear would no longer rule them I pray for those that need to make some tough calls as parents I pray for those that are considering a move a relocation and they're just crippled by fear that they would be able to step into the courage you offer us. Help us to hear that whisper. Take heart. Don't be afraid. It is I. I'm right there with you. We acknowledge our fears, Heavenly Father, to you today. Lord, you know them before we admit them. but You've invited us to name them so we can be set free of them. Jesus, no doubt we find us, some of, our, some of us today are a lot like the crowds that day. We're sick, in a myriad of ways. We need your healing touch. We need to hear your words. Have courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. So Holy Spirit, please help us with our hard hearts. Soften them, open them, and grant us the courage that comes from being fully convinced and fully alive. It's in the name of the one who is truly, ultimately worthy of our worship, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.